Hello, happy Monday and welcome to this, the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod, uh, sponsored by Betfair. We're talking all things EFL, that is Championship League 1, League 2, uh, Emirates FA Cup, and also EFL transfer window on today's pod. So quite a lot to offer you. And I'm with George Ellett, which is exciting. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. Transfer deadline day week is upon us. Wow. <laughs> uh, you've got to be up for it, don't you? Yeah, I'm up for it. I mean, it's always funny, the January window, because I don't know when it's going to kind of the narrative is going to change. It feels like most fans of clubs in the EFL go into January thinking, yeah, we're going to get the four or five players that we need that is going to change our season. And every signing is is greeted with this kind of huge um, celebration. Whereas in actual, you know, I think if you look back through successful clubs, over the last few seasons, there are very few where you see massive recruitment drive in January being the key reason for success towards the end of the season. I think it's more a case of enabling um, clubs to maintain their form. You know, if you think back to last season and Plymouth Argyle, where things looked pretty bad for them when Morgan Whitaker was, was recalled, they brought in a couple of additions that really helped kind of steady the ship. It's those additions that I think are interesting, but also, you know because it's so hard to do deals in January, because players that you're after, you know, good quality players are generally going to be being used by their parent club who aren't going to want to lose that player in mid-season. It means more than the summer, there is an almighty scrap on deadline day where clubs suddenly go down to their third, their fourth choice or one move, you know, a championship club selling a player suddenly triggers a a domino reaction where, where all the deals go through. So it's going to be a pretty crazy last 24 hours I reckon even though so far in the EFL I don't think it's been a great window but it, it never really is it'll be fascinating to see what does shake out over the next few days we are going to have what I think is probably the first ever dedicated EFL specific transfer deadline day live blog on ntt20.com and George as ever with what we're doing on there a lot of planning's gone into it we've had some some pretty detailed and lengthy planning calls with the team yeah, we have. It's going to be. I think it's going to be like a like a transfer war room. I think come um, come Thursday, we're all going to be in, and we're all going to be um, looking at the sightings as they come through and and, and analysing them and giving our thoughts. Um, I can't really imagine what it's going to be like, to be honest. But I'm very excited to do. It. I'm very excited to just spend the day with you and Hugh and, and Sam. It's going to be great fun. That's lovely. Yeah, we have the intention of going to the pub at some point. Uh, but we're mm. not quite sure what the best or worst timing of that will be because I think <laughs> Sam's done some research into like previous deadline days and the volume of transfers that get announced post 10pm is quite overwhelming. So we, we need to be careful, but we also want to make sure that we have fun. Uh, this is going to be free for everyone to read. You don't have to be a subscriber of NTT20.com to enjoy our transfer deadline day live blog. We'd love it if you were a subscriber of NTT20.com and, and we do think that we provide a really interesting content offering for, for our subscribers. But uh, just for Thursday purposes, for deadline day purposes, Make sure that you get ntt20.com's live blog up as soon as Thursday begins. Keep the tab open, keep refreshing it, and let us pour transfer juice directly into your gaping mouth. One transfer that we think will be confirmed today is what I think is probably the most interesting transfer of the whole window, and that's Ali Al-Hamadi to Ipswich from AFC Wimbledon. Interesting this. You've got a guy who... 
I think if you look at League Two at the moment, and, and we did this the other day on Dear Ali and George, and, and you look at the players in League Two who could make it at the top level, Alhamdi is the obvious example. It's it's nuts to me that you only have to go back a year for him arriving at AFC Wimbledon. It's been a, a hell of a 12 months for Alhamdi coming in as a player who didn't really make the grade at Wickham into AFC Wimbledon, had a, a brilliant goal-scoring spree towards the back end of last season. Had a, a difficult start to the season in terms of missing chances, but you know his his quality to any away fan that's been to go and see FC Wimbledon this season, Don's fans as well will tell you that they agree. Like he is a, a really exciting signing, and, and someone who was linked to um, Barnsley in the um, in the summer, and seemingly they rejected a bid for him. But at 21 years of age, you know he turns 22 in March. The the potential that he's got is massive. There are two interesting parts to this in my mind. Firstly, it's the step up where I kind of assumed that when Ahamadi would move, probably in this window, the, the likelihood may be that he would go to a championship club who would then be happy for him to be um, loaned back to, to AFC Wimbledon until the end of the season. In a similar way to Josh Stokes' deal from Aldershot to Bristol City, like you're, you're investing in someone for the future. He's got massive talent. He's going to be benefited by playing a lot of games. He's obviously thriving in an environment at, at AFC Wimbledon. Um, and so why not send him back out and then work with him in the summer? But he's going to an Ipswich side who are absolutely desperate for at least one striker. You know, Stuart Watson, who broke this um, the story this morning that this was actually going to happen, um, has also said that the Ipswich town is still in, the, in, in for a striker, which isn't surprising because the second point here is a stylistic one where Alhamdi is in style most similar, I would say, in terms of when you're looking at the attacking options, the array of attacking options that Ipswich have got, he's most similar to Caden Jackson. You know, he's someone who is strong, who's direct, who is able to run the channels very well, who plays off the shoulder, who's a good footballer and, and you know, will drop in, but he isn't necessarily someone who's going to hold the ball up and bring others into play, which is what George Hurst does and which is what George Hurst has been incredibly important and successful at doing for Ipswich. So stylistically, it's a bit of a clunky one where even though I, I expect he will do really well, I don't think he's going to be able to come in and and do what's needed in terms of, you know, Chaplin and Broadhead, Burns, these players who thrive having the, the the Hurst doing what he does so well in terms of the target man style of his game. I really hope Ipswich aren't bringing in Alhamdi in the expectancy that he will do that. The fact that they're seemingly after another one suggests not, and maybe it will be someone more in the mould of Sam Gallagher who'll come in to, who does do that very well. Could be in the exact um, mould of Sam Gallagher because it could it could be Sam Gallagher. Yeah. So it's intriguing from that line. Like, is you know, he's obviously got way more potential. I mean, is is Sam? Sorry, is Ali Hamadi better right now than Caden Jackson? Like, it's an interesting question. I, I'm not sold that necessarily he is. I think he has the potential to be a Premier League striker, which Jackson doesn't have. Um, so I'm 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 a big fan of it. I think in time it's going to be good, but I'm not necessarily sure right now. Despite thinking he's a, a proper talent whether he is the answer to Ipswich's problems with Hurst's injured. I think it's really interesting stylistically because you're absolutely right that he doesn't do George Hurst things. Uh, and I guess I'm just interested from a tactical point of view as to do Ipswich need that or have they just had that and it has been a recognisable part of their success over the last 12 months? What if they have a different profile of striker playing number nine? Is there a way that Kieran McKenna can tweak the way that they play, build up the way that they combine in order to benefit from things that Hurst can't do, such as the incredible explosive speed that Al Hamadi has, the channel running that you mentioned, the intelligence to combine with teammates and dribble and carry it past players with that burst of speed? 
You know, he can score with both feet. In fact, his 23 league goals for Wimbledon are split down the middle, 11 with his right, 11 with his left and one header as well. So uh, on a really base level for me, I want to just add one more thing to this conversation. And that is the reality of the transfer market at the moment and the player pool uh, in the UK and, and extending it to Europe. This is a profile of striker that is in complete demand from the very top of the game downwards, but has a huge dearth of supply, both in English football and seemingly beyond as well. We know, because of conversations that we've had over the last few months, that almost every team in the championship is looking for someone broadly of this mould. And we're not talking about clinical finishers here. We're talking about guys who do almost everything else that, that doesn't pertain to finishing ability because that doesn't seem to be the most important thing now for strikers, either at the top level, where no Premier League striker this season has overperformed their XG uh, in the whole division because they are being used in such a wide-ranging all-round role. And I think Alhamdi has a lot of qualities that, that should fit that role. Uh, in the UK, or at least in the EFL, if you're a championship club and you're looking for a striker to buy, it's natural to look at the leagues below you. But in League One, all of the top... I think... I think no striker in League One that has scored 10 goals or more this season is under the age of 27. So again, if transfer, if resale value is part of, of this discussion, then those League One strikers such as Dion Charles, Colby Bishop, Alfie May, etc. There's a, a sort of feeling that, well, actually, we could sign them and we might get short-term quality from them. And actually, maybe that would be the right thing for January. But are we going to get much from them in the long term? And will we ever be able to to realistically sell them? Or will this be their high point? With Al Hamadi, as you said the last time we spoke about him, we have absolutely no idea what his ceiling could be. And it could feasibly be, and we've seen it with a number of players over the last decade, a Premier League ceiling. And that would obviously benefit Ipswich hugely going forward in a way that if they signed one of those League One names... You, you'd probably be confident that wouldn't be the case. Um, in League Two, there's really no one else. We had a couple of you know, good loanees like Freddie Draper, like Mo Fahl, like Joe Taylor, but I don't think there's anyone quite as electric as Al Hamadi. And so you look abroad and, well, mid-season, are you going to be signing players from European clubs that those European clubs don't want to sell for a fee that's under two million quid? Absolutely not. It is not really going to happen. We've obviously seen Radulovic sign for Huddersfield. He was a top scorer in the Finnish league last season for HJK, um, which has kind of exploded and um, his career and put him on the maps of, of others. But the uh, Finnish season is f finished, <laughs> for want of a better phrase. So that's a, a big reason for his availability. Even if you just look at the summer, you know, we wrote a whole piece on, on championship clubs dipping into the European market. The strikers that were signed from Europe, you look at the list now, Who's been a success? Hadji Wright has just started to be considered a success after a, a pretty profligate first few months. They paid 9 million quid for Hadji Wright, Coventry. Latilath, 5 million quid, still kind of on the fence. Osmayic at Preston, 2.5 million quid, has been playing quite well, but has only scored four goals in 20 games. Ryan Maie, 4 million quid Stoke played for Maie. I've seen little outside of like, two or three flashes to suggest that Maie is going to be a really consistent striker doing all doing all the all-round stuff that you want as well as being a goal threat as well. And basically everyone else, I mean, Rajovic is scoring goals, but the way Watford fans talk about him, you'd think he was a National League striker. So I guess what I'm saying is, yes, there's risk. Yes, it's a big jump up. But there just are not very many people available for Ipswich, for example, to sign in this situation. So in that sense, I think it is a common sense signing for them. 
And clearly, it's one that uh, interests us quite a lot. Let's hope that gets done now, George. Otherwise, this pod could be aged very, very poorly. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> Let's talk about the the two sort of key um, FA Cup storylines, I guess, that would be pertinent to us to talk about. One of them involves Ipswich Town. It involves them getting beaten by sixth-tier Maidstone, managed by George Ella Kobe. Uh, I literally can't think of anything to say other than just screaming magic of the cup over and over again. So good. This was just absolutely incredible. Um, uh, watching this, it, it felt like a massive throwback to what the FA Cup was kind of growing up. And um, I haven't made any secret of, of like a lot of people getting quite frustrated with the way and, and I understand that obviously it's done on on ratings I assume there will be algorithms to tell TV companies which games should be on TV but you know this was Maidstone's first game it's their third EFL scalp it was the first one that was televised live on national TV it was on BBC One and I'd love to see what the the ratings were because um, I can't imagine anyone tuning into this wasn't over the moon that they did um, apart from possibly Ipswich Town fans um, you know it was as these games are going to be, you know, Ipswich totally and utterly dominated possession. They hit the woodwork three times uh, in the first half before Lamar Reynolds scored just one of the greatest one-on-one finishes I think I've ever seen. I made an extraordinary noise when he initially flicked the ball over Walton's, Christian Walton's head because I thought he just completely got it wrong and had ballooned it into the uh, fans behind. But it was just a, a beautifully executed dink with the outside of his right boot that saw Mason go in at halftime, one nil up, despite you know, as you'd imagine, not really having many opportunities in the game. Uh, Ipswich then came back into it through Sarmiento, who was their best player on the day. It looked a real goal threat consistently, someone to look out for in the second half of the season. Um, but then, you know, Sam Combe comes in and, and scores a goal to make it 2-1 and sends the Maidstone fans into delirium. Like, And they saw it off fairly comfortably. Like it, there weren't any mass, massive um, moments where you felt for them they were they were struggling. Uh, Colovan, uh you know, a player that we've seen in the EFR recently with um, a, 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 some very good saves in order to keep Mason in it, but they saw it out pretty well. So incredible scenes. And I always say, like, whenever people talk about the FA Cup being cheapened by teams playing weaker sides, like this was a team where Kieran McKenna made changes. I can absolutely guarantee you that Maidstone fans in the stand and Maidstone fans will talk about this game for the rest of their lives or won't care that Shone Aluko made his first appearance for Ipswich in however long. They won't care that there was rotation. It was an incredible cup tie. And yeah, excited to see what they can do next time up at either Sheffield Wednesday or Coventry. Breaking news. Since you've been talking, Darren Moore has been sacked by Huddersfield wow. Town following their draw at QPR on Sunday afternoon, which maintains their three-point gap over QPR and which only was a draw rather than a Huddersfield win due to an injury time equaliser from QPR, but not enough to save Darren Moore's job. Uh, I am benefiting from being a subscriber of Stephen Chicken's excellent Substack. We are Terriers here because that email uh, flashed up just as you were talking on my phone. So thank you to uh, Stephen really for being so quick and on it. Uh, Kevin Nagel said in a club statement, uh, we we have to make this decision to give us the best chance of maintaining our Skybet Championship status come the end of the season. 
Darren's a fantastic man. Uh, we appointed him on the strength of his credentials as a manager, but it is now clear that this has not worked as we envisaged and hoped. Uh, I am paraphrasing this to be clear as I scroll through it uh, and read it to you. I believe that our current squad is capable of more, particularly on the back of the work we've carried out in this transfer window. We're quickly moving to identify the right person to lead us through a crucial period of the season. Um, George, we, we mentioned over the last few weeks that Kevin Nagel, the owner, has been over in the UK. He's been going to all the games and he's been doing... I've heard a lot from him, haven't we? He's been doing some regular vlogs, which is a bit of fun. Uh, or is it? And uh, we felt, based on his own content, uh, that this writing was on the wall, particularly as he continued to pile huge pressure on the outcomes and results of individual matches. Uh, what, what are your initial thoughts here? I... I'm not surprised. Firstly, I think, uh, again, fan sentiment had completely gone against Darren Moore. And often these days when the pressure is mounting up um, as an owner, you, you kind of have to, to pull the cord. Um, would I have made this decision if I were in charge of things at Huddersfield Town? Probably not. Um, I still think the job that Neil Warnock did last season, if you take out Warnock's spell in charge and you look at what happened before Warnock, I still think for Huddersfield, this is a squad that isn't, in my mind, unless you do a 10 out of 10 job like like he did in terms of results, it's not necessarily a squad that's capable of doing much more. It's also interesting to me that they sack him off the back of a run of results. And you say, you know, putting a lot of pressure on results, and that's fair. But they've taken six points from their last six games. And when you analyse those in isolation, you've got the 3-0 win home and over, over Blackburn, which was quite clearly their best performance maybe of the season, but but definitely under more. No shame in losing 4-1 at, at Leicester. No shame really in losing 2-1 at home to to Middlesbrough uh, in a game where Housen scored very late and, and there wasn't really much between the two sides. Since then, they've drawn three games in a row. The, the best performance probably on the face of it was on Sunday, where they... Uh, Seeded very late to QPR, but this is a QPR side who under Marty Cifuentes have been much better. This is a QPR side who they are vying for in terms of trying to stay in, in the division. And anyone who watched that game on Sunday, I think, would agree that Huddersfield were away from home the better side and were unlucky not to come away with, with, with three points in it. You then also got the one all draw against Blackburn, where they were okay, and the one all draw against um, Argyle, where in the second half they were the only side who looked capable of coming back into the team. I, I don't think there is too much in these performances or I, I don't think right now in terms of the performances in both boxes they look like a relegation side I also think there's been improvement in the performances themselves so I, I know Huddersfield fans listening will disagree for the most part and will think that a change was needed I know that Neil Warnock has understandably shown what is possible um, I think he sets a very high bar for what's possible I'm also not entirely sure what he was doing was sustainable I wonder, could it be time for? I mean, can, can Warnock come in and do and do it again? Um, surely not. But we'll have to wait and see who's linked with the job. Yeah, Darren Moore's been getting a lot of sticks in the la- lot of sticks, a lot of stick in the last few weeks for his his tactics from the fans. So I thought the the tactics were really good away at QPR, to be honest. Especially as Cifuentes, his opposite man, is is known or at least is developing a re- reputation over here for being a good tactician. Uh, it's worth remembering there are four new outfield players in the starting eleven as well for Huddersfield. That's Brody Spencer, who's just been recalled from his loan uh, in the first half of the season, where he did very well in Scotland. He played right back. Uh, Matos on loan from Chelsea at, at centre mid, and then Healy and Radulovic uh, up front. I, I don't think it's that surprising that 
there were times where this team didn't look exactly telepathic, shall we say, on Sunday. But I did think that broadly the shape was good and, and the performance was pretty good. Uh, Radoni was the one that got the goal for them and, and keeps getting better every time I, I watch him. Um, so that's the end for Darren Moore. I mean, uh, some decent options available for, for championship managers at the moment, for championship clubs rather, uh, Mike Duff, Gary Rowett, John Eustace. People will have their own opinions on, on the quality of those names, but you can see them uh, at the very least being part of the conversation. Uh, and I guess there's always that aspect of Nagel and, and those running Huddersfield Town looking at the impact that Danny Rural, that Marty Fifuentes have had on the teams beneath them, who are still beneath them, <laughs> uh, and wonder if they could get a similar uh, improvement if they can find the right man. Uh, just to, to, to sort of. Who do you think the right man will be? Well, I don't know, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, do you have any thoughts? It, it, yeah, it seems like this is a moment where Huddersfield kind of have to decide who they are and who they want to be. Because in my mind, without like radical changes in terms of the the, the playing staff, they have to be a side who are resolute, dogged, solid defensively. But I, I worry that that isn't necessarily how the new ownership see it. Like you hear about. The, the way Kevin Nagel talks about the way he wants the game to be played and about passing forwards and stuff. I don't like passing backwards. It's a cop-out. Yeah, and, and I kind of feel like, therefore, mentality of defending first and, and being hard to break down might also be seen as a cop-out. Mike Duff. But to my mind, yeah, I mean, Mike Duff. That's my I name. I think Gary Rowett is another one um, mm. that I would be, you know, Rowett is somebody who consistently has been able to take teams where... You know the 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 technical level of the player is maybe deficient compared to most opponents, but they can adopt an out of possession shape that makes them incredibly hard to break down. He constantly or fairly consistently will get teams punching way above their weight, um, and is is kind of the definition of a, of a safe pair of hands. Like he seems like a really obvious one for me who who could come in there and kind of warnock it, but in a way that is more sustainable. Um. And, you know, we'll, we'll get the best out of the current playing squad. But maybe given what we've what we've heard from the owner recently, the, the aspiration will be higher and the aspiration will be to try and play a different way, um, which I think if the attempt is to implement that early could spell trouble. I think Mike Duff makes the most sense, personally. Uh, I know that the fans have had a bit of an issue with the three at the back formation that Moore persisted with for some time. Duff is obviously known for... Uh, prioritizing or, or preferring that sort of shape as well um, but I've always thought of him as a, a really good coach out of possession I'm ignoring the Swansea spell here because it was a complete disaster and I don't think it's reflective of his quality as a whole I just think it was uh, lightning in a bottle or whatever the bad version of that phrase is just a terrible terrible fit I don't think those same issues would be the case at Huddersfield where the the narrative is a, a lot different when it comes to style of play and there's a bit of desperation as well so uh, yeah I, I guess off the top of my head, Mike Duff would be the answer, but you'd have to hope that the those who run Huddersfield haven't just been asked the question that you asked me two minutes ago and we'll decide on the spot. <laughs> uh, I'm sure they've been thinking about it for some time. It was an equaliser from Kenneth Powell. Sort of need it in. Great cross from Elias Chair. QPR do you will... Kenneth him? What do you do? Yeah, I think... I think I think I Kenny, but I don't know if he's actually ever asked me called Kenny. So I think you're right, Kenny Park. Just as he said it there, yeah. <laughs> it does sound like the sort of nickname we would have on this pod. I know. Uh, it, this was a really poor game for for this level, by the way. I mean, it was 
probably because of the match situation, it was always going to be KG because of the, the lack of attacking fluidity that these teams are playing with at the moment um, and the nerves. But it, it really was tough to watch. There were so many bitty fouls and bitty passages of play. Um, QPR certainly didn't replicate last week's display against Millwall, which was so impressive. I thought there was... No connection really between the defence and the midfield, between the midfield and the attack. Uh, it was it was tough to watch, um, and I did think Huddersfield were, were the better side. And and had they held on, they would have deserved that win. But they didn't. Um, flipping around back to the FA Cup. This is this is the least Monday pod Monday pod of all time. No structure. Just we ever going to talk about yeah pure vibes. vibes and it's should we do like a League Two draw now? As someone who likes to run this podcast with a quite a lot of control I feel like I'm on some sort of roller coaster and I don't really know what's going to happen next um you said you made a pretty serious noise when your man from Maidstone lifted it over Christian Walton I fully ran round my living room when Newport County equalized against Manchester United on Sunday evening I absolutely loved this 10 minute period where Newport just suddenly went toe to toe having United having to be fair played very well in the first half an hour and, and scored two good goals. Newport's first goal was the perfect out of nowhere 25 yard deflected strike from Bryn Morris. Um, I felt quite bad for the commentator who hadn't picked the deflection first time round and was giving it like greatest goal in the history of the FA Cup vibes and uh, only for the first replay to basically remove that sort of level of adulation because of the uh, <laughs> because of the deflection. But then, I mean, Newport's equaliser was just it was so good because it wasn't a sort of uh, it wasn't like a lucky breakaway. Uh, it wasn't a, a scrappy set piece goal. It wasn't a deflected long ranger. It was like the per- the most perfectly constructed goal I think I've ever seen a league, a league two team score at any level. It was an, a beautiful kick from Townsend, the goalkeeper. Uh, Will Evans running the channel, which he does so well, latching onto the ball, holding it up and playing it into the feet of uh, his strike partner, Palmer Holden. So we had a lovely old-school front two combination. Palmer Holden uh, holds the defender off him, lays it back to Wildig, who's bombing on on the other side of the pitch, the left-back, Lewis. Wildig plays a beautiful first-time ball that curls into the path of Lewis, who pings in a low cross, and Evans has made that run from the far side of the pitch to the near post, finishes brilliantly. It was so, so, so good. One of my favourite things that's happened this season, honestly. And the fact that Man U then went and scored two goals to beat them, well, I don't care about that. Well done, Newport. That was absolutely uh, brilliant. What a few weeks that that club has experienced. And we hope that the revenue from that cup run might help them uh, start uh, or continue to build on what Graham Coughlin's done this season. Uh, elsewhere, the only EFL team that won were Leicester City, who beat Birmingham, despite all reports suggesting Birmingham were by far the better side, uh, at least in the first half of this game. Um, Vardy among the goals there. The goalkeeper Stolarczyk, uh, the star man for Leicester. We got Wrexham, Blackburn tonight, so uh, the last League Two side left in the competition. Uh, and then there were just tons of draws and replays, mostly for championship teams. So um, we'll see who makes it through uh, after those replays. Uh, back to the champ. Sunderland 3, Stoke 1. George McBeal needed this. Needed this. Yeah, he really did. Um, I think if you look at the reaction, obviously we know that he wasn't a popular appointment to start with. Results were initially okay, but back-to-back defeats against Ipswich, who you know are obviously a side towards the top end of the table where Sunderland want to be, and then Hull, who are a side that Sunderland are vying for playoff places with. 
meant that things got nasty very quickly. And it, it saw McBeal kind of come out swinging a little bit in the media before this game in a way where if they'd have lost this game at home to a Stoke side who themselves are, are, are fighting off relegation this season, I think we have to say that now. It wouldn't have been a massive surprise to me if that had been the end of McBeal at, at Sunderland. Um, I think things would have been incredibly toxic at the Stadium of Light. So he really needed this. And I think Sunderland as a club really needed this, where they were they were by no means at their best. They were by no means anywhere near where we've seen them at other times this season, but they were able to get over the line, which is something that we haven't necessarily always been able to say about them. Uh, Mason Burstow scored finally uh, a goal, um, with a, a very scrappy goal, but a, a close-range finish to put them 1-0 up. Uh, Abdullah took it the, the second nicely just after half-time, and then Equa with a similar goal uh, to make it 3-0 before an own goal took the, the gloss off a little bit. But it, I mean, it wasn't particularly convincing. I don't think anyone would have come away thinking, wow, you know, this is Beals Sunderland. This is what we're kind of what we're after and what we're expecting. But those three points, I think, are incredibly important. So uh, a big win for Beal, but, and something that buys him a bit of time, but it does kind of feel like the humility that he showed when he came in and his approach now, it feels like the criticism and I think what he would perceive as a lack of respect from Sunderland fans means that we're going to see a very different guy and it, it, it already feels like a stretch to me to ever see Beale being hailed as the, the saviour of Sunderland. Yeah, I, I questioned his tactics, didn't I, in their last game uh, on the Monday pod last week. So I think it's fair to mention that one thing in particular stood out as having been really effective, a, a, a Mick Beale decision uh, that was objectively a very good one. And that was to push Pierre Equa as pretty much the most advanced of their central midfielders. Neil was sitting, Joe Bellingham played central midfield with Equa in the number eight roles, but it was Equa who was having a bigger impact on things in the final third than Joe Bellingham. And I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that that would have really surprised Stoke. That would have been very, very different to what they would have prepared for. Equa scoring the third goal um, in positions that he just wasn't taking up before. So uh, that was a really good tweak and had a really positive impact on on Sunderland's, on their performance, on their result here. But it was all about Jack Clark again, wasn't it? I mean, Gooch just could not handle him. Um, the first goal, Bursto scoring scrappily, but it was all about Clark in the build-up. The second goal, even more so, all about Clark in the build-up. Hugh wrote in weekend notes on NTT20.com about his attacking gravity. I mean, it's clear to see that every single Stoke defender ended up trying to stop Jack Clark and he just squared it to, to bar to score. So uh, a good day for Sunderland. Necessary. Uh, it wasn't just uh, Beale's pre-match comments that were causing a, a, a bit of noise, but actually uh, an unusual situation or a surprising situation anyway, in which uh, Alex Pritchard, who has played a lot of games for them recently, started a lot of games for them recently, uh, withdrew from the squad and has seems to have made it very clear that he'd like to leave the club. So uh, Pritchard uh, on the transfer market for a team looking for a diminutive number 10 uh, that is capable of some good stuff, but is not particularly consistent with his outputs, I wouldn't say. Um, yeah, interesting to see where he ends up. And for Sunderland, it's Middlesbrough away next Sunday. So uh, Bill necessarily needs to get that right as well um big game Millwall one Preston one was quite sort of uh bottom half of the table fair I know that Preston are, are not that they are in 12th very much the top half of the table um but but have been sliding over the last few months and uh, an even game really Fleming scoring from a honeyman cross 
Uh, Tanganga making an error for Preston's equaliser, giving the ball away. But uh, what stood out from a Preston point of view was Mads Frockier with some lovely, lovely forward passing. Uh, he was the one that set up Brad Potts, found him in stride to finish for the equaliser. In League One, busy old weekend because there was not a single League One team made it into the fourth round of the FA Cup. Uh, let's go at the top, George, where Port Vale and Portsmouth went head-to-head. Pompey winning this one late. And for the second week in a row, probably have to talk about a bit of bit of fan behaviour, don't we? Yeah, it wasn't great, was it? I mean, the, the incident itself, I also thought was was a bit of a nothing, where Port Vale fans were incensed, um, th- feeling that their, I don't know who it was, um, was fouled. Chislet. Was it Chislet? The Chislet was fouled in the, in the build-up to the goal. Sean O'Sea on Chislet, he slid in, he got the ball. It was a strong challenge for sure, but he did get the ball and it, it, went, it went straight through to Kamara, who then tempted Conor Grant into a little lunge and, and went down because he got there first and, and won the penalty. Now, Crosby, yeah. the, the Port Vale manager, said afterwards that the Sean O'Sea one, he felt is one of those that, that kind of can go either way. You do sometimes see a ref giving a free kick just because they're not happy with the... By mistake. In, well, no, just because they're not happy with the intensity of the challenge or the force of the challenge. Um, and he said he thought that the foul in the box was a was a penalty. So the, the Port yeah. Vale manager himself barely had any qualms. Yeah, and, and that's kind of how I saw it too, in terms of, you know, the Port Vale fans who are incensed by the first tackle. I can absolutely guarantee that if you swap the shirts around, then there's no way... Um, that you know the the ire would happen, but anyway, I mean, a, a, a Port Vale fan uh, was suitably incensed to to get on the pitch and start chasing the referee. Um, which what is wrong with people? Like I know, but this, it's the most childlike behaviour that adults consistently put forward. Now it's basically at football, like this sort of idea that because you're at a football match, you can behave in a in a way that like you wouldn't even like your child to behave. Like the response, just on a purely like human behavioural level, the response to things happening that you don't like is absolutely insane. But surely, I mean, firstly, I I totally agree in that, you know, the person's an absolute fool. But like, if this was a regular occurrence, I'd be more worried about any systemic issues. Like I know that we see idiots at football a lot, but for for me, it's just the the ridiculous, I mean, and we've just spoken there about, a, a decision that we felt was correct. We often talk about decisions that we don't feel was correct, were, were correct. But I think there's always like a, an understanding that refereeing is difficult and it's never disrespectful to the referees. But I do think the way that football coverage generally now just pours over every refereeing decision to the extent that you actually have programs and podcasts and the rest of it just in uh, just analysing refereeing decisions creates an environment where fans feel like they are you know, that they deserve or they are due like perfection from refereeing and that their perception of what is right and, and what is wrong is, is correct. And that is just a ridiculous environment to be in where this guy has made up his mind. He is correct. He's right. The injustice is ridiculous. Referees have to be better. I'm going to run on the pitch. Pathetic. Uh, as for the match itself, I mean, Portsmouth winning late with a penalty might make it seem like a, a fortunate win for the league leaders. They were excellent here. And it's actually quite nuts. Like, uh, I, I imagine a lot of people listen to this pod often watch... Uh, the Sky Sports website two-minute highlights of matches because they're so superior to the highlights that the Terrestrial Highlights program provides, particularly for League One and League Two. And um, you actually get more than a goal. Um, And in this one, 
like in the first 55 seconds, I think they managed to cram in like seven or eight first half chances for Pompey. So credit to the editor on SkySports.com because uh, it really gave a clear idea that, that Pompey were basically all over Vale, uh, certainly in the first half. I mentioned last week they'd, they'd switched uh, formation, Mussinho, because of a, a lack of quality in that sort of most advanced midfield role with Robertson having been injured. Uh, Sadie maybe not offering what they wanted. He switched to three at the back against Fleetwood. They ground out that 1-0 win. Then they signed Miles Pert-Harris on loan from Brentford, straight back into the 4-2-3-1. Pert-Harris straight into that role that he was recruited for uh, and looked to put in quite an interesting performance and, and it probably is the type of player that you could see replicating what Robertson was able to do in that position. So that's a, a piece of recruitment that I think just instinctively I, I, I quite rate. Uh, he was obviously at Forest Green last year, which was a loan that for the for the team, well, well the team just had a shocking year and I think Pert Harris had some ups and downs within it. But I do think he's quite an interesting uh, player and, and should be a good signing for Pompey. Um, so a good win for them, a deserved win and, and back to the 4-2-3-1. Uh, Carlisle. And Bolton went head-to-head. Uh, you may remember that Carlisle beat Bolton in the reverse fixture with a Jordan Gibson hat-trick. Now, he did score in this game. It was Carlisle's only goal. Bolton got four of their own, Georgia, and revenge for the earlier season defeat. Yeah, they're impressive. Um, they scored with, their, I think it was their first two shots of the game, wasn't it? Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, given I've had some concerns over their, their recent performances in games against poorer sides in the in the league you know Carlisle obviously fit into that but going there away from home and, and putting four past them was was really impressive and I you know I still think that um actually that's completely wrong about it being the first two shots of the game they, they they kind of had put the pressure on on Carlisle already Carlisle were the ones who hadn't really attacked in any in any sense um but well taken goals by Ashworth and Magoma for the first two and they went in at halftime rightfully 2-0 up um and had put in a performance kind of better than maybe we'd seen during that run. Um, frustration for Carlisle, you could hear the boos ringing out after those first two goals. That They're stuck a little bit at the moment where you've got a situation where they've recruited heavily in the um, in the window so far, to my eyes, pretty well. They've got Owen Moxon, who's had a contract at the end of the, at the, end of the season, um, seemingly refusing to sign a new one. So what do you do about your kind of only sellable asset um, with his contract being, being run down? You've got a manager who is an absolute club legend who masterminded a, a incredible promotion last season against all odds who, you know, frankly, from the outside looking in, your club are probably quite lucky to have, but everyone knows that when you're not doing well, there's only one thing you can really do and that's sat the manager. Um, so it's difficult for Carlisle to work out how to, to come back from that and losing 4-1 at home doesn't help. Um, and in the second half, after Jordan Gibson got them back into it, Carl Dempsey scored to make it 3-1 and then Ogbetta, having uh, only come on for his debut at Bolton, um, came on and scored a really nicely taken goal and then kind of jumped into the away fans, which is exactly what I would do if I had scored a goal two minutes into my debut for a club. Um, so, uh, yeah, big win for Bolton. It really solidifies their, uh, well, I think even though on the face of it, the results have been okay, I think Bolton fans and any Everett will be delighted to have put in such a dominant display and a display where they created so much. PPG leaders and joint favourites now. I think for for uh, for the title. So yeah, I mean there are tougher tests coming fairly soon. Like this was always going to be a period where Bolton needed to pick up a lot of points because yeah, I mean up, they've got uh, Barnsley at home coming up up next. But generally, if you look at the you know they've still got most of the top uh, ten or so to play away from home, um, which are coming up fairly soon. So but they've you know they've they've passed the test at the moment and and. If they continue playing like they did on Saturday, they'll have no issues. 
yeah, soccerstats.com does a really good run-in analysis. So it's kind of looking at the future fixture list. It, it calculates the home points per game of the teams that uh, any given team is playing away from home from now to the end of the season and then vice versa. So it's not just the opposition's points per game in total, but specifically uh, weighting it by home in a way as well. Uh, and Bolton have by far the hardest set of fixtures, as you've said, out of any other team in the top four, in the top six. Uh, interestingly, Blackpool have the toughest run-in per these stats uh, of any club in League One uh, and Oxford not far behind them as well. So uh, interesting to start looking at these things as we approach the the last portion of the season. I absolutely loved Paris Magoma's little dummy shot. Uh, the ball was rolled across to him on the edge and he looked like he was going to spank it with his right foot. A lot of people would have done that and probably sent it high over the bar into the stands. Uh, but not Magoma. He's got that sort of extra bit of silk, doesn't he, that really stands out. And he dipped inside and then finished low. Um, Kyle Dempsey scored there. Was it their third goal? Uh, notable for me because Dempsey, born in Whitehaven, Cumbria, came through at Argyle, but gave it big guns scoring against them to make it 3-1. Uh, and uh, I mean, we've got a bit of a stake in... You said Argyle. Ah, came through at Carlisle. Not Argyle. Came through at Carlisle. I think our Twitter bio is from Carlisle to Argyle. So there you go. Bit of wordplay there. Sort of words that mm. Eminem would rhyme together. Um, and then uh, Nat Ogbetta, as you mentioned, finished it, who I kind of feel like we got a bit of a, a sort of uh, emotional stake in because For sure. he was in the inaugural 21 under 21 almost two years ago to the week. And he had just signed for Swansea from Shrewsbury. We thought it was a great fit for a team that were going to play really attacking wingbacks and ask a lot in the final third from their wingbacks. And it almost immediately became clear that he just wasn't fancied at all by, by Russell Martin. Uh, he suffered injury as well. Only ever played 60 minutes in the league for Swans. Uh, and then managed to sort of drag it back a bit with a great loan spell at Posh last season, which was ended prematurely with a, a bad quad injury that he's only just come back from. So uh, I still believe in him. I think he's he's still so young. He's like 22 still. Um, so it'd be great. I think it's a good fit for, for Bolton as well because, you know, his, his attacking qualities are by far stronger than his defensive capabilities. Uh, and I think he can have a big impact in a team where playing wingback for Bolton is basically like playing as the as the winger, as the as the wide attacker. So uh, better with a good start there. Carlisle now 10 points from safety. In 23rd. Above them in 22nd, George. Cheltenham Town, good form under Daryl Clark, has been well publicised on this podcast. But they lost 2-1 to Derby. Uh, they're still seven points from safety. There's been a, a clutch of teams above the bottom four in League One that have kind of picked up recently. And it's making it a tough task to get out of. Uh, talk to me about their 2-1 defeat at Derby. I thought they were unfortunate again. I, I put them up in the in the betting show, um, and they were good in the first half um, when Sir, Liam Serkin put them ahead early in the second. Um, it was by no means against the run of play. It wasn't like it was a game of loads of chances, but it was fairly even between the two of them. Um, and then Max Bird. I mean, this is the thing. Like it's it's moments of like sheer quality. Like if you actually look at the way this game went in terms of the game flow, there was very little between the two. But when you've got Max Bird, who, you know, Wayne Rooney said should play for England when he was his midfield partner a couple of years ago, whipping in a, a left-footed free kick where the keeper doesn't even move. And then an unbelievable volley from James Collins. Like These are two guys who whose technical ability is, is beyond the level. And that's why, you know, you can shove your XGs where the sun don't shine because, you know, it doesn't factor in necessarily that 
one of the one of these um, one of these teams have two players that can do that can do that. But Daryl Clark will feel aggrieved. They had plenty of opportunities in the second half to um, to get back into it. Uh, there was Freestone missed. I mean, it, it's a very weird case where it was kind of an open goal at the back post, but he was hurtling towards the back post. And after the header went uh, wide to the round side, he actually clattered into it. So I think you can forgive him a little bit. Um, but there was nothing in the game in my eyes to suggest that that Cheltenham, despite the little run of losses, uh, falling away, I think we will still see them. You know, they've got Wickham at home next up, which is a huge game, like an absolutely massive game. Um, where if, if they can win that one, then not only will they claw back, you know, not only they pick up three points, but they'll claw up, claw um, some ground on, on a team who are, who are dropping towards them pretty quickly. And I think that we'll continue to see them pick up points at home against those kind of sides. Um, for Derby, big relief, you know, for them after a disappointing um, little run, you know, to, it was an awkward game and, and one they've managed to come away for with, with a big win. So, um, yeah, relief for them and I guess frustration, but but no need to be too downhearted, I don't think, for, for Cheltenham fans. Debut for new Derby signing Corey Blackett-Taylor here. Didn't have a huge impact uh, on the game as he acclimatises to life in a Derby shirt, having joined from uh, Charlton Athletic. I must say, given that his dribbling stats in particular are basically absolute standout in League One this season, the idea of Derby having him and Mendes Lang on the pitch at the same time is is pretty scary for the rest of the division. Uh, Barkhazen started as well. All three of them started, albeit I would kind of expect in a normal Derby side that probably it would be Mendes Lang plus Blackett-Taylor and then Barkey coming off the bench. But a uh, uh, good addition for them, I think, in the short term as they push for promotion. Peterborough pushing with them. They drew nil-nil at Lincoln, though, uh, unable to get the win. And in fact, you know, fortunate in, in some ways. Uh, Ricky J. Jones hit the bar for them. That was their best chance of the game. But Lincoln had plenty of presentable chances as well. Not least Danny Mandroyu in the second half, who put wide when well-placed. So Lincoln winless in nine now. Uh, Peterborough's three-game winning streak ends with a draw. Um, and they will look forward to their next game. Barnsley, that was the worst segue ever. They will look forward to their next game. That's when you know I've got nothing to say. Um, <laughs> Barnsley won, Exeter two. George, remember when Exeter went winless in 13? Remember when they, uh, they they dropped down from basically the top of the table to the relegation zone? Well... How about four wins, two draws and two defeats in their last eight for 14 points? That's what it takes to get back up to 14th in this League One bun fight. Uh, Jack Aitchison scored four extra against his former club. Uh, gave it big guns in front of the Barnsley fans. Obviously didn't enjoy his time there very much. Um, and Reese Cole scored a very, very tasty goal with a, uh, similar to Magoma. Mm, really nice finish. little dummy and a, and a turn onto his left foot and then curled it into the far corner. So, so extra went 2-0 up. After half an hour, then they put their hard hats on and, and dug in. Um, and just an off day for Barnsley, I think, really. After 11 unbeaten, clearly this is, is going to feel terrible for the fans. But I think there's probably a bit of perspective needed that they're not always going to come out on the right side of these, you know, kind of high high shot, high variance games. Yeah, I mean, it, I think that kind of sums it up where you say it's an off day. I, I think it was a, a fairly similar performance uh, we've seen from Barnsley a few times in games that they've won. Uh, just this time, the opposition were able to take their chances. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to say it was coming, um, but it was coming, uh, in my mind, basically. Um, so I mean, I don't think there's any massive reason to be, to be overly concerned. I think it's a, more importantly, it's a huge win for Exeter, um, because as you say, it's so tight down there. They've got a, you know, these kind of results are going to be the difference come the end of the season. And, and 
know, you mentioned the, the gap there with Cheltenham. It does kind of feel like there is a bottom four now, like a, a, a pretty clear one again, having having felt much more cramped earlier. But as I say, I, I do still think that certainly Cheltenham and Reading are going to make it very awkward for these teams. And, and even though these wins are important, there's still a big picture when it comes to the relegation battle in League One. And we had a change in sixth spot. Stevenage back in the playoffs. They beat Wigan 3-2. And they jumped over Oxford United because they lost 3-1 away at Bristol Rovers. Uh, let's bat between these two, George. I mean, the Oxford game, the Bristol Rovers game is how I would look at it because I just find them confusing but great fun at the moment. Like just from a neutral standpoint, I think Bristol Rovers are fun to watch and fun to think about in terms of where they might go in the next 6, 12, 18 months. Uh, and they also made a big signing uh, the day before this game, Camel Conte. Signed from Grimsby, went straight into the base of their midfield. Uh, I wrote this one up on NTT20.com and, you know, it's a big jump up from him. He, he made an impact at Grimsby, absolutely no doubt about that. I do think that sometimes people can go a little bit far and, and over-exaggerate the strength of, of individual players' performances. I think Grimsby fans would probably say he was a very good player for them, but that he wasn't exactly like dominating or running every single game at League Two level. But you can see a little bit like Al Hamadi that Bristol Rovers are signing a player with a, a profile that fits basically every possible uh, tactical system uh, that raises the floor of teams because he's he can receive the ball under pressure, but he's also good at snapping at heels out of possession. Uh, and I think that that's a, a big... Well, it was a big gap in their team, a big gap in their squad. So excited that Camel Conte went straight in here and Bristol Rovers won 3-1. Uh, what do you make of the game? Well, from an Oxford standpoint, it was very disappointing. Oxford were very poor, especially in the first half. Um, couldn't really work out what the, the game plan was. Sat pretty deep, couldn't really get out. Um, had one shot, which was from 25 yards from Tyler Goodwin, which went over the bar. Um, Jamie Cumming, I think, was probably... Uh, fault's the wrong word, but but all three goals you're looking, thinking, could he possibly have done better? Um, the first um, at the far post kind of slipped inside him. Um, Luke Thomas with the second, a kind of long-range shot that, that seemed like it was saveable. It was, it was you know, Bristol Rovers were, well, didn't really have to be that good in order to, to get ahead in the game, and they were pretty good. Um, Kamal Conta came in and looked really lively as well in midfield, which was... Again, frustrating for Oxford fans who are desperate for a central midfielder, but Des Buckingham has said in the press that he doesn't agree. Um, he thinks that the options there at the moment are enough, which when you've got Josh McEachran, who, who rarely plays 90 minutes, as he didn't hear, meaning that Marcus McGuane and Cameron Brannigan basically never get a rest. The, the Oxford's performances this season just look very tired. And also when you consider that Mark Harris is still the only striker at the club, given Will Goodwin is injured at the moment, there's just so many minutes in these legs that it, it just feels very lethargic. Um yeah, so, I mean, for Bristol Rovers, I'm, I, I'd have thought, given Oxford's position in the league table, would have probably fans going to the game would have been pretty uh, surprised by how poor Oxford were in it. Second half, they came back to it to an extent. Mark Harris didn't know much about his goal. It was kind of a deflected shot from Cameron Brannigan before Harvey Vale made the game safe after coming and had spilled the first shot. So, um, you know, for, for Matt Taylor, it's obviously big for, for, for Gas to have stopped their own little losing run. I think the playoffs are probably too far gone now unless they went on some crazy crazy run Oxford this week have the rearranged Pompey game uh, tomorrow night which is massive especially with John Massino returning to the club as a manager um, and then Reading at home which is the first time Reading have played Oxford at home or Oxford played Reading at home um, for 20 years or whatever so it feels to me like a, a pretty significant week for Oxford United where a couple of wins puts 
Oxford back in this top six mix and, and actually probably back in the automatic promotion conversation, two defeats or a point or two will ramp up the pressure on Des Buckingham or ramp up the pressure on the club and will confirm my suspicions that Oxford right now are no better than a, a mid-table side, possibly even worse. Stevenage came from behind against Wigan to win 3-2. Uh, really cute goal from Tello Asgard. It wasn't uh, quite as beautiful as the goal that he scored last weekend, but two really deft, agile touches to to, to win the ball in the box and then nip it past the uh, Stevenage goalkeeper. But Stevenage just out-beefed Wigan here. Firstly, for their equalising goal, which saw the first big contribution from Big Verdane Oliver. Uh, and then the second equaliser was a amazing Carl Piaggiani header uh, looping over the goalkeeper. And a Louis Thompson 20-yarder won it. Um, I love the Verdane Oliver signing because it's further evidence that Steve Evans basically has his own transfer market with his own rules and doesn't follow the, the, the general rules of the EFL transfer market. By which I mean... No other League One team would sign Verdane Oliver. No other League One would have a conversation about Verdane Oliver. He hasn't started a league game in League Two for Bradford this season. He hasn't scored a league goal since the 1st of January 2023. But Steve Evans, more so than almost any manager, knows exactly what he wants every single one of his players to do in whichever role that they play and has a pretty good idea now of what sort of uh, physical profile and I guess... Uh, psycho- psychological profile as well he wants to work with and having got a lot out of Verdane Oliver in League One for Gillingham before he's happy to bring him to Stevenage and, and he's already having an impact here so uh, Stevenage just doing so unbelievably Do you not think well that it's such a good example of that in my mind of recruiting for style rather than recruiting for ability like everyone always we see it so often in the EFL where, where and actually at the top level as well where players come in and you're like yeah, they're quite good. I mean, it's kind of what we said about Ahmadi. Like, yeah, they're quite good, but it's it doesn't really align with the way they play or, or, or what they need. Whereas Oliver is someone who, as you say, wouldn't, I don't think, be good enough for 23 teams in League One. But there's one where he would be very useful, and that's Stevenage. So, yeah. yeah. I love it. I, I actually think, you know, going back to Bristol Rovers, that they've got some transfer rumorizing of their own in that Aaron Collins was out of the squad entirely here and there's a lot of interest in him being reported by Bristol Live, Bolton, Wrexham, Charlton have all been mentioned as as well. Uh, Matt Taylor saying it's in the club's hands uh, until the valuation's met, he'll still be our player. Uh, but in terms of him being unavailable, that was his decision. So uh, that'll be one to watch on the Deadline Day live blog on ntt20.com. But he's a great, he's a great one for that exact discussion, isn't he? Where Collins was the league one official player of the year last season he had a double double by january his performances were excellent and he had he had a big impact on a team that were you know mid table but he was by miles their star player this season the goals have dried up completely he's still a nuisance he's still creating quite a lot of chances but you know that level of goal scoring has not proven to be sustainable he quite clearly is not an out and out number 9 that would ever play number 9 uh, on his own like in a in a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1 because he he prefers he seemingly prefers to be in wide areas particularly on the left-hand side but he's not necessarily a typical left winger either so I don't necessarily think he's the sort of player that would slot into every single team and and instantly fit them so I think what you've just said there about Steve Evans and Verdane Oliver rings true for Aaron Collins as well whoever signs him do they know what they're getting and will they put him in position to get the best out of him I don't know I mean Wrexham played 3-5-2 so it'd be interesting is he just going to become a sort of 
penalty box poacher for them. Uh, is that going to get the best out of him? I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Blackpool drew one all with Charlton. Um, should have won this comfortably. Blackpool, they, they dominated. They they missed some insane chances in the first half. Jordan Rhodes with the least Jordan Rhodes thing ever. Uh, sort of squirting it wide with, with an... I know, hitting it straight at the goalkeeper when he could have just tapped it into the corner. Uh, but Karamoko Dembele continues to be excellent and scored a good goal here to put them in front. Uh, but Charlton equalising through an own goal late on, um, which is a, a big point for them because they're in absolutely horrendous form. They're also managerless, George. They sacked uh, Michael Appleton uh, on Wednesday night last week. Tuesday night, in fact, it was, uh, after a 3-2 home defeat to Northampton. We saw that one play out in front of our eyes and it was quite the experience, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. I um, had to, I don't know if I've necessarily seen quite so toxic an atmosphere between manager and fan base. Well, obviously, you know, you hear a lot about um, you know, chance of, of managers out and the rest of it. Um, but this felt quite personal kind of on, on both levels. Um, obviously kind of disclaimer, I like Michael Clapperton a lot as a manager and a man. Um, you know, it was quite uncomfortable sitting there and, and hearing the, the Charlton fans just kind of screaming the W word at him as he went down the tunnel, uh, at halftime. Um, Seemingly, there was some back and forth between him and the fan base as well. So I'm by no means saying that Appleton was, was blameless in the toxicity that came on Saturday. I think probably off the back of that, like having watched that, I went in to the game live, hoping that Charlton would win, hoping that to buy him some time. I left thinking, God, it is better for everyone if this just ends because this is not nice. Um, and it was another game where, I mean, it's interesting with Appleton and, and what's gone on where if you look at the the individual games towards the end of his tenure, it, it's so perfectly primed for a new manager bounce. Like I've never seen such a ripe club to bring in someone in who won't have to do very much whatsoever, but but to be hailed as a saviour. Because even though you know the, the defensive shape has been abysmal under Holden and under Appleton, and for whatever reason it feels like there was a total reluctance to to address that issue. And that is something where a new manager, I'm sure, will come in and immediately look to, to rectify that, which in itself will have a huge bearing on their results going forward. Because from an attacking standpoint, generally, their numbers have been pretty good. And even against um, Northampton, you know, there are a couple of occasions where you know, Backinson got into the box and couldn't get his couldn't get his shot away. You had Alfie May bend one into the bottom corner. An unbelievable moment where he did that whilst the Tannoy announcer was announcing seven minutes of out of time. I've never heard it before where... The, the seven turned into a shriek as he was doing so, as the ball whistled towards the corner. Um, but it was, but it was well saved. And then you know they they go and score in the break. And when you look back through Charlton's games over that period of time, and I'm not saying Appleton was in any way um, blameless for this, but there were so many occasions where you can look at a game where on the balance of play there wasn't much between the two sides. And they come away with nothing from those. You know, you had the game against Port Vale where they they were ahead three times. You had the game against Oxford where Oshin Smith fires one in from, from 30 yards after James Beadle had made a string of saves. You've got the Burton game where Burton basically go forward and score their their, their only two attacks in the whole game um, after they, they'd had a goal disallowed. Like it was, you know, and, and then the whole variance thing kind of plays out on Saturday where against Blackpool, they were absolutely walloped on the balance of play, like Blackpool completely battered them 
Um, Jordan Rhodes missed uh, from a yard, um, kind of scuffing his shot. They had loads of opportunities during the game. When Karimoko Dembele put them in front, it was totally deserved. They had more opportunities to win it. And then an Alfie May deflected strike going wide, dribbles into the goal, and they get a point in a game where they absolutely deserve to lose it. So, you know, the good thing is for Charlton now is that the fans will be back on side and the fans will um, expect a, a good manager to come in. I think it's a, it's a great job to take on, you know, despite the fact that realistically, I think the bookmakers have Charlton's having kind of a nine-to-one chance of, of relegation. But if someone comes in and manages to, or you know, and, and takes a squad that has to be one of the, you know, one of the top five or six budgetary in the league, and keeps them up in inverted commas because that's how it'll be perceived by by the fan base. They'll win themselves credit that that you know certainly Appleton never got that Holden to an extent got because he was so good with the fans in terms of the way that he spoke about them, which Appleton didn't do and never really does. Um, I think this is well set for for someone to come in and finally reignite Charlton Athletic. Yeah, they need it. Uh, they're eighteenth. They are four points above the relegation zone. Uh, they've played the joint most games in the league, so it's not like they're in a false position. Uh, in fact, in PPG terms, they'd actually be fourth bottom. Uh, Reading's points deduction obscures the fact that they've earned the same amount of points as Charlton uh, on the pitch from one game fewer. So they have picked up, in terms of points per game, a relegation level of points this season, and uh, that can't continue. Uh, Shrewsbury, on the other hand, had a great time over the weekend. They hired Paul Hurst to replace Matt Taylor. The return of the man who took them to the playoffs completely against the odds in 2017-18 before leaving them for Championship Ipswich, which went disastrously. Uh, Hurst's next job was at Scunthorpe, which went disastrously. Uh, and then he returned to Grimsby, where he had done a great job before joining Shrewsbury. And that went really, really well in the main uh, until the start of this season. So uh, they say never go back, but Paul Hurst has gone back once. And it was quality. So he goes back again. Made a bloody good start. I tell you that. They played 4-3-3 here. And it just looked a lot more coherent, which is great to be able to say. Uh, Shipley was at left wing and Bloxham at right wing, stretching the play. Shipley had a good game. Bayless as well had a good game. Uh, as the most attacking of the central midfielders. And Udo uh, had a good game too and scored a nice goal. Shay uh, Dunkley heading home from a corner. So what a feeling that must have been for Shrews fans after watching... An incredibly poor team for the whole season so far. Um, they went to, to a cobbler side who had won at Charlton in midweek and they were absolutely fully deserved winners there. Uh, and I think that they'll be confident that they've hired a good manager who knows exactly what he's doing, basically. Is is Paul Hurst the most attractive profile of manager in the modern game? Not necessarily. Uh, is he the guy that you hire to oversee uh, a young squad to try and develop young players and raise their resale value and play an attractive style of play to do so? Probably not. And in the appointment of Matt Taylor, it felt like that was what Shrewsbury thought they wanted. But is Paul Hurst going to raise the floor of your team significantly if he comes in uh, at this sort of stage? Yes, I'm very, very confident of that. So, um, yeah, a, a real flip on my Shrewsbury Town vibes from this time last week. Uh, we had a couple of draws as well. Uh, Wickham 2, Fleetwood 2. Fleetwood would tunnel up in the first half, but Omakere got sent off, having scored the opener, and that changed the game. Leahy missed a penalty for Wickham, then McCleary scored a penalty for Wickham, uh, and their equaliser came from Richard Kone, who they signed at the start of January. Uh, they signed him from Athletic Newham. 
who are in step five, which is six levels below League One. Athletic Newham's badge is a complete ripoff of the Atletico Madrid badge, by the way, which is great fun. And he scored, according to Athletic Newham, 100 goals in 108 games over three seasons for them. Uh, I thought that he would likely just kick around the, the Wickham B team until the end of the season and, and kind of get an idea of his level uh, at, at that level. But actually, been thrust straight into the first team squad. Everyone seems really excited about him and impressed by his goal-scoring ability. And he scored a nice goal here to equalise. So there you go. Uh, interesting bit of recruitment there from Wickham, albeit they've only won one in 17 in the league, whereas Fleetwood winless in 12. Reading and Orient drew uh, 1-1 and Cambridge and Burton drew nil nil that league one relegation battle is getting much spicier than i thought it would i must say uh, it's been really interesting down there in the last few weeks at the top of league one stockport county absolutely thumped donny rovers george are you the same as me where when you watch this one back you know generally team wins 5-1 you, you, you feel yourself kind of focusing on the team that's won 5-1 but i couldn't get over how embarrassing this seemed from a doncaster point of view yeah, it wasn't good. And you have to wonder where they go from here because after a really poor start to the season under Grant McCann, it felt like he was starting to get them you know, back upwardly, upwardly mobile. And you know, the, given the relationship between him and the fan base, you know, it felt like, okay, we're building now for next season. But suddenly, given the current run of form, they are trending back downwards towards the relegation zone. And at the moment, they're kind of dependent on Forest Green and, and Sutton not sorting themselves out before they're properly embroiled within it, um, especially with signs of life from from Salford and, and from Colchester. So, yeah, really, really poor and and hard to really make a case for why uh, anything would be better. It says a lot that uh, McCann made a, a triple substitution. Oh no, took four players off at, at half time. The whole front three of Molyneux, Ironside, and Hurst all shipped off. As was Craig, didn't really make any difference um, at all. You know, the the only possible um, you know, we always say Stockport a, a big chance FC and that was the case here where they, they created five of them the only possible thing is, is the underlying numbers weren't quite as bad as um, as the, the scoreline suggests with Donny actually winning the XG battle 1.7 to 1.6 according to Opta but you know when you're when you're d- down and behind as early as, as you are and you concede five it's it's not really much to, to hang your hat on all five goals were headed goals as well even the OG from Owen Bailey went in full off his face um Next four fixtures for Doncaster, Sutton away, Tranmere at home, Salford away, Grimsby away. Three of those teams are in and indeed around them. So quite important that they don't replicate that performance. Uh, Stockport feeling a bit more comfy after this. A cushion of seven points to fourth place now. A lead of five points at the top as well. Nick Powell was probably the most notable performer for me, um, looking every inch the quality player that that we thought he would be when he signed. Uh, Wimbledon beat Mansfield 2-1. This was a, a, a pretty... Tetchy, spicy affair at Plough Lane. And to be honest, George, uh, in the context of Wimbledon's absences, uh, namely Ali Alhamidi and namely a second centre-back, um, they had Lee Brown playing against Joe Lewis. I thought that was going to scupper them. I thought that Mansfield might be able to overcome their recent poor performances, but they weren't helped by the fact that Jordan Barry got sent off early on for a little dogzo red card that, oh, I don't know, I don't know what I think. I don't yeah, know what I, I think. Know. It's one. It's a bit like it, it's a bit like an LBW where you're like he's he step miles down the pitch, 
Like it's <laughs> it's so far it's so far from the goal. You're like, oh, so much can happen between there and the and the goal. Like, is he preventing a goal scoring opportunity forty yards from goal? Maybe. Well, I don't know. But he was sent off and uh, Nigel Clough wasn't very happy about it. Omar Bugle and Will Swan traded goals. And then in injury time, they had a huge penalty shout as well. Uh, Keelor Dunn, r- wriggling past, I think it was Joe Lewis. Did he have his hands on him? Did he pull him back? Keelor Dunn went down, nothing given. Uh, and the debutant, Ronan Curtis. Remember Ronan Curtis? Well, he plays for Wimbledon now and he scored a 97th minute Winner, Johnny Jackson sprinting down the touchline to uh, have a big old bundle with his team and a, a big, big win for Wimbledon. Mansfield winless in four. Uh, George, crew two, Salford three. I think basically the worst thing that can happen to a team that's been doubted by George Ellick is when George Ellick changes his mind and throws his weight <laughs> behind them. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a tough game because I think Salford look a totally different side to what we saw under Neil Wood. So maybe this will age okay for Crew. Like it wasn't great from them. Um, you know, having gone behind, they, they wrestled about to, to 2-1. But they were just simply unable to deal with Matt Smith. They were unable to deal with Matt Smith from open play for the first goal. They were unable to deal with Matt Smith for um, the corner for the second goal. And they were unable to deal with Matt Smith with his feet at the back post for the third goal. Um, he is... Someone where if you if you fail to stop him, you're going to be in trouble. Especially now that Salford looked like a far better attacking side than we've seen all season. So, um, yeah, it'd be annoying for them that after their best performance of the campaign, they were unable to follow that up. But as I say, I do think Salford now and probably till the end of the season are going to be a completely different kettle of fish um, than what we saw before that. They play Wrexham on Saturday, um, which will be a really interesting gauge of of where they are um, because. I think, especially with the players they've got at their disposal, they might be quite good now. Mm, 18 goals for Big Matt Smith now in the league. 11 of them, 11 of them scored with that big old dome of his. Uh, really, really uh, unrivaled in the air and Salford up to 19th now. 10 points above the relegation zone. Eight points in four under Carl Robinson with three of those games having come away from home. So really impressive impact from Carl Robinson and the performances, as you mentioned, seem to back it up as well. Uh, Knotts and Barrow drew one all. This one was a couple of things, really. It was fifth v sixth in League Two uh, and it was a competitive game. Spence put Barrow ahead. They started really well, really brightly Barrow. Cole Stockton and Dom Telford are now their starting strike force, which is pretty exciting uh, given the level of goals that they scored a couple of years ago. Telford in League 2, Stockton in League 1. Uh, Stockton almost scored a Cole Stockton special sort of 40-yard volley with the keeper out of his goal, but it just swerved wide. Um, they, they both looked pretty dangerous and, and Barry went ahead um, through Spence, but Nemain finished off a Jody Jones cross in injury time of the first half. And the second half... Well, it was just Jody Jones copy and paste, really. It was just Jody Jones facing up the fullback, beating him and then whipping in dangerous crosses, none of which were finished off. I mean, it's absolutely insane what he's doing, mate. 17 assists Jones has got, and it's January, and that's the most on record that anyone's ever got in League 2, 17 in one season. You thought there were some quite wild Notts County passing stats here. It was their first game under Stuart Maynard, so it feels notable. Um, let me get them up now. But yes, they, I mean, it feels like if this is an insight into what is going to happen under Stuart Maynard, Notts County, it's going to be very passing heavy. Um, they, I think it was 700 and I'm getting the, the actual numbers up as we speak. 748 accurate passes um, for Notts County in this game, which is like 
Man City don't do that very often, um, if ever, really. Like John Bostock, 104 completed passes. Um, Aidan Baldwin, 140 completed passes. Uh, Carl Cameron, 83 in the middle of defence. Richard Brindley, 102. Like, this is wild. Dan Crowley playing as a 10, 81. David McGoldrick, also in that kind of off the strike or 62. Like, this is wild. Absolutely wild. I don't want to take the mick, mate, but didn't they pass quite a lot under Luke Williams as well? Is it, is it significantly yes. more than that? I mean, not significantly more, but yeah. I mean, I'll, I can find out. If you talk for a second, I'll find out the average passes per game under Williams. But um, yes, it, it is more, yeah. Stuart Maynard, born 18th October 1980, <laughs> is an English football manager and former player who is the head coach of EFL League 2 club Notts County. He's only just left his job as telecoms engineer for BT Openreach in order to go full-time for the first time in his football career, uh, having moved from Wealdstone to Notts County, replacing Swansea City-bound Luke Williams at Meadow Lane. Ready? 570 is the average, so it's over 200 more. Whoa, that's crazy. MK Dons beat Gillingham 2-1. Tight game. Really, for 79 minutes, very even. Both teams sort of throwing jabs and not a lot more than that. But uh, MJ Williams bounced in a volley from the edge of the box. Didn't know he had goal scoring in him, really, MJ Williams. But that was a very welcome goal for Mike Williamson's men. Uh, Alex Gilby doubled it. And then uh, Walker pulled one back for Jules in injury time. It means that since MK Dons appointed Mike Williamson, he has won 10 or they have won 10 of his 15 league games in charge. Uh, They were 16th. They are now sixth. They are now three points off the autos. And I'm wondering if I should have showed more conviction in those mid-season predictions uh, where I said, I really think MK can make the top three, but I just can't work out which of the three that might sort of flame out. Hmm. Forest Green nil, Accrington one. Uh, Akia in that sort of uh, just outside the playoffs, sort of trying to jostle for position and getting a, a big win in what was a tight game decided by an error from Ryan Innes. I don't really know what he was thinking when he started wrestling Alex Henderson as a cross came into the box, but referee deemed it to be a penalty, scored by Jack Nolan. Uh, 1-0 defeat for Forest Green in Steve Cotterell's first game. Uh, what do you make of Cotterell, George, being Forest Green's third manager of the season as they look to make up what is now a, a nine-point gap between themselves and safety? I can't say... I love it from like a holistic point of view. I can completely understand why they've done it. I think given the situation that they're in, um, going after somebody who has a track record of sorts is is a uh, an understandable way to go. But when you consider, you know, having been relegated from League One, um, appointments were made from a, a strategic point of view on the footballing side in the summer that suggested they were going to go a different direction with Anna Steele coming in from Brentford. Um, the appointment of David Horseman suggested a, a certain plan or project was underway. So to go from David Horseman to Steve Cottrell with Troy Deeney in the middle is not necessarily a, a particularly um, strong suggestion that things have gone to plan. However, when you're EFL status is at stake. You can understand why you'd maybe go down that line. How, whether or not we see Cottrell work well in the framework that has been created at Forest Green Rovers, we're going to have to see. So, yeah, I don't hate it in itself. I think it probably, they probably, if you're looking at the percentage chance of relegation before and after the appointment, I think the percentage chance of relegation probably went down when Cottrell was appointed. So in that short-termist point of view, I guess it's not the worst thing. 
Mm, elsewhere, Tranmere beat Grimsby 2-1, banishing uh, the memories of those defeats to MK Dons and Barrow. Was it a banishment week. or was it a murder? <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, Rob Apter was and always has been a traitor. Uh, the star of the show... Uh, getting the better of Anthony Driscoll Glennon to score a, a fun opening goal where his first touch sort of... Either it was a Ronaldinho-esque first touch off his bum on purpose or it was just complete fortune and the ball bounced off his bum uh, into his path and then he just dribbled in and finished. Uh, let's go for the former. Doug Tharm equalised for, for Grimsby but Apter was at it again, showing that velocity that makes him the Velocirob Apter to, to get down the right side and crossing uh, to provoke an own goal from Tobias Malarkey. So a uh, big win for, for Nigel Adkins' super white army after a, a back-to-back defeat since the start of November. 26 points in 13 games for them, which is a real bit of fun. Uh, and they are certainly not out of the playoff discussion at this stage. Swindon beating Bradford. George, this was big, wasn't it, for Swindon Town? I mean... On one very basic level, just the first time they've kept a clean sheet in 19 games, but feels important after a really volatile few weeks for them. Yeah, really important um, because it felt like they were kind of sinking without a trace and they need to get some good feeling back in, in the club, which has been lacking for a while. Like, uh, this wasn't necessarily the, the template for a successful rest of the season. You know, they scored through a penalty, which was their second shot of the game. Uh, Dawson Devoy then converted from close range just before half time. Uh, they only had five shots in the game. Uh, of which one was a penalty and one was a free kick. So in that sense, not the best. But Bradford were, were pretty poor. You know, they struggled to create a great deal. I think Swindon's defensive issues this season have been pretty clear under under Michael Flynn. So it seems like, you know, the, the caretaker manager has quite clearly worked hard on addressing that issue. And if you do keep clean sheets, if you are able to prevent the opposition from creating good opportunities consistently, you're probably going to pick up points. And that's what they learned here. Definitely not, not out of the woods, although... What are the woods here? Because you know they, they should have enough points on the board to avoid relegation with no um, issues. But uh, yeah, so I'd be more for Bradford here off the back of a run of form where they played okay but couldn't pick up any points. This was a, a really drab, disappointing display away at one of the, the most out-of-form teams in the league. And that is a concern. Mm. Yes, indeed. I think it's important for me to point out, uh, given how worried I was when Jake Young and Dan Kemp left. And given I highlighted the Glatzel and Devoy in particular as the, the two that would be replacing them, I thought was a bit of a drop-off. I was very taken by the highlights of this game and the performance of Paul Glatzel in particular, who linked up well with Russian Hepbo Murphy uh, and won that that penalty, which was scored by Austin, and then made a really nice run in behind, showed composure, skill, awareness to set up that man, Dawson Devoy, for the second goal. So uh, they certainly took that personally and, and combined to win it. Uh, I know that the Swindon fans were really pleased with the debut uh, of Connor McCarthy, the centre-back uh, from Barnsley, who handled Andy Cook very well and Look, defending their own box has, has got to be something that they do better in the next couple of months. Uh, Morecambe nil, Colchester United won. Uh, great few, first few weeks for the Cowley brothers. Uh, one win, two draws. Moving in the right direction, they had Arthur Reed, their lefty central midfielder, to thank for a absolutely delightful free kick from range uh, into the top corner. Uh, they had their goalkeeper to thank as well, Owen Goodman. Uh, making a, a good strong save to deny Jed Garner from the spot. So first win for Colu under the Cowleys. They 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 seem, I must admit, really pleased, positive, energetic, and I do think the strength of character 
the strength of personality and the strength of coaching quality that the Cowleys bring to the table has to be just such a positive thing for Colchester United. Um, they've got a pretty good squad, actually, for this level. Um, Cowley referenced how pleased he was with what he calls his sexy bench after the game. Um, and yeah, their, their bench has Matt Jay on it, who took Exeter to promotion a couple of years ago. It's got Connor Wilkinson, John Akinde, Harry Anderson, Tom Dallison. Like, these are good it's fairly established League Two players, so uh, plenty for them to work with and a, and a cracking start they've made. I mean, it's bad news for Forest Green and Sutton, isn't it, really? If if Salford and Colchester are, are sustainably going to improve like like they, like the good starts they've made under Robinson and Cowley, then it's going to be a very, very difficult job to make up the points gap. Sutton uh, getting a creditable draw away at Walsall 1-1. It means they've now drawn four games in a row, so they've, they've stopped the rot in a sense still plenty of work to do uh george that's been a bit of fun well done mate you were class i cannot wait for thursday transfer deadline day and the ntt20.com live blog bonanza wow me too make sure you sign up to ntt20.com albeit uh, the transfer deadline day live blog will be uh, free to read it'll just be a web page for you to open up as a tab and keep refreshing throughout the day and we'll provide the good stuff uh, we're really really looking forward to that and thank you for listening to this not the top 20 podcast we hope that you go very well <laughs>